This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 30. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell from the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we have a very special guest who has actually worked as an advisor for some of Canada's largest banks, really giving him some good insider information on how we can all save money when dealing with the banks. Now, his name is John Callos, and he runs Merit Financial Planning, where he basically specializes in doing financial planning for business owners here in Canada. And he also has his own new podcast called Confessions of an Ex-Banker, where he also shares some of the secrets that he learned when working in the banking industry. Now, you can check out John and all of his details by going over to the show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 30. So just the number 30. All right, now before we get into the interview, I wanted to let you know that I've been invited to speak at the Young Money webinar series hosted by Canadian Money Saver Magazine. So I wanted to definitely invite you to that as there's really some good speakers lined up and I will be presenting actually this coming Thursday, so Thursday, October the 13th, on the subject of will you have enough to retire, where I'll basically look at the key factors to consider when determining whether you're on track to retire, no matter how old you are, and how to plan in such a way that helps ensure that you don't run out of money in your retirement. All right, so you can learn more and sign up for the webinar by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash webinar. Last but definitely not least, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, 5i Research, where you can sign up for free to see the recommendations on the top dividend stocks, the top growth stocks in Canada, as well as view their model portfolios and have access to their database of over 47,000 answered investing questions from across Canada. And since you're a Build Wealth Canada listener, you can get full access to all of this for free for 30 days by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. All right. Now, alternatively, if you're more interested in being an index investor, but aren't sure how to get started and how to do everything properly, you can check out my in-depth step-by-step video guide over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. All right. Now, all these links are in the show notes too over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 30. So I really hope you check them out. And now let's get into the interview. All right, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cornell. Nice to be here. So really excited to talk to you. You've actually worked at some of the major banks, so you actually know the inner workings of everything. And, and I thought we could really pick your brain a bit to figure out sort of how we can get basically, you know, the best rates at the banks, how we could save some money at the banks, how to basically help us negotiate a bit better, you know, whether it's our you know mortgage, line of credit or bank fees or especially investment products, as I know that's kind of a really big area where there's a lot of money to be saved. So, you know, really to, to kick things off with the first question, you know, let's say that we're saving money for something like education, a down payment on a house, a car, basically something where we want the money to stay relatively, you know, pretty safe. We don't want it to be fluctuating. But at the same time, you don't just want to keep it in, let's say, a checking account where it's earning next to nothing, especially with where the interest rates are right now. So, you know, when it comes to these really safe investments, what are the options that we have as Canadians and how can we get the best rates? Well, as far as investments are concerned, Cornell, when, when we say safety, that word is relative. Everybody has a different right. meaning when it comes to safety. Now, if, if I have a, a client or somebody ask me what's the best way to save if I'm, if I'm going to need something a year or two from now, that's where I'd say you probably don't want to put your money in the markets in any kind of instrument in the market because anything could happen over, over the short term. So uh, at that point, I would suggest purchasing some guaranteed investment certificates, GICs, 
And the best place you'd be able to get those are actually online, uh, what we call online banking right now, um, where you're, you're, you're probably going to end up getting up to three quarters or 1% higher than what you can get when you walk into your branch. Now, the other question that, that people ask is, should I be saving this money outside my RSP, inside my RSP, or TFSA? There's, there's basically, there's, there's these three options. And the way I always suggest to clients is, an RSP for me is sacred. I wouldn't touch the RRSP unless I had no other option. So uh, that 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 and and the, you know other people will argue uh, will argue that, but I, I just consider I'd like to consider the RSP as truly the retirement vehicle and nothing else. But again, if that's the last resort, then you have no choice in going into your RSP. What I would suggest to save it would be in the TFSA, where you can save money in these uh, in these uh, registered accounts, but the interest or or any kind of gains that you make are not taxable. So GICs. From a from a third party or from from an online bank inside a TFSA. Okay, understood. So then, when you uh, when you let's say you, you you look online, you do your searches, you find some good rates there. Then you would I assume open up a TFSA account, kind of with that institution, and then that's basically, and then you would buy the GICs, and then they would basically go into the TFSA at that institution, and then you could have another TFSA account, let's say in your discount brokerage or or you know elsewhere at your branch, but that's where you would basically keep the GICs. Is that how you would structure it? That is right. And you mentioned the discount brokerage uh, through. A discount brokerage you could get higher rates than what you get at your bank at, when, when you walk into your branch but you know it's it's worth it's worth um, looking around for other institutions as well um, I believe in Canada there's like 80 different institutions that offer guaranteed investment certificates and they all fall under the $100,000 CDIC protection that's a protection fund where if, if any institution fails you're, you're guaranteed up to $100,000 mm -hmm. so uh, it, you know there are times where you're going to get promotions from different institutions so I'd spend you know a little bit of time looking at the different choices that there are and then comparing those with a discount brokerage as well and, and you'll end up with the best rate. Okay. And is there a, a certain resource you like to go to to look up those rates or is it just kind of you do a Google search and then generally they'll kind of come up near the top and then you basically yeah. look at what the different providers yeah. are doing? I, I, say, I always say ask Mr. Google. Right, right. Because yeah, it's always fluctuating anyway and things change. So yeah, it exactly. makes sense. Get, get five mm -hmm. or six different opinions from different from different institutions and then just pick your best rate. Uh, j just to mention also, as far as the TFSA is concerned, um, the limits are a little over $5,000 right now. But if you haven't contributed in previous years in your TFSA, you can actually add those contributions in as well. So right. you're not limited to only $5,000 if you haven't made contributions in the past. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you can always go on the uh, CRI website, log into your account, and you can always check what, what those kind of limits are for you right now. Um, yeah, that, that's a really good point because, yeah, someone might look at that and say, oh, well, or, you know, they might kind of read that, oh, my limit is, I think it's 5,500 now or something. It's, it's around yeah, there, that's right? right? That's right. Yeah. And so they might look at that and say, oh, well, I'm saving for a car. That's that's nothing. But really, you know, if you haven't been contributing to FSA, you actually could have, uh, I think at this point, it's like well over, at the time of this recording, it's like well over 40 grand now, I think. I think I, it's 40. Five, if I'm not mistaken. I, I believe it's forty. I believe it's forty. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's quite a bit if you haven't been using your TFSA. So I mean, you know, technically, I know, I know, I can definitely buy a car for a lot less than that. That's so right. Can, <laughs> <laughs> now, and it, and it, it can take up a big chunk of your down payment for your mortgage too, if that was your intent instead. Right now, when it comes, you mentioned also, you know, 
RESP. When it comes to RESPs, again, depending on how much time you have before you need the money, if you have over 10 years before you'll need the money for your children's education, that's where I would consider going into different instruments other than GICs, and that would be, you know, like blue chip stocks, um, you know, in the Canadian markets, in the U.S. markets, in the European markets. I think you're 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 likely to get a better return over the long term when it comes to investing using those instruments. I wouldn't necessarily put it all in in the markets, but that'll depend on the tolerance that each investor has for you know, the, the day-to-day or year-to-year fluctuations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And then how do you find that the, the GICs, how do they compare to some of those? Because there's some banks now where, you know, they offer actually pretty high interest savings accounts. Uh, like I know I'm with one right now where I keep my emergency fund and they're actually getting me 2%, um, which, you know, for a, for an account is, is, is quite a bit, you know, at the time of this recording, you know, things right. may change. But um, so how, how do you find, you know, GICs compared to some of those different banks? Are they, are they a lot higher? Because it sounds like it's a lot more of a kind of a hassle right to, to get one that's right and, and you know what real rates aren't much higher than that mm-hmm. um, and when you when you do go online and check for these banks you, you make a good point they do offer bank accounts as well and generally speaking the one-year GIC if you lock in your money for one year it's pretty much the same as a bank account now right. again on a daily basis these rates change depending on depending on uh, the banks needing need the banks need for funds so uh, that'll change from one day to another. But, you know, if you're looking at a couple of years to save for money, uh, to save money, for example, then you might want to lock some of that money into a two-year GIC where you're, 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 you're probably going to get a higher rate. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so if I have, let's just say this, if I have $20,000 that I want to save and I'm going to use in two years, I'd put $10,000 in the bank account. I'd put $10,000 in the two-year GIC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, okay. Yeah. That sounds, uh, that sounds good. And then, you know, you mentioned about how you can, oftentimes you can get better rates if you just search online as opposed to going to your typical branch. Is that, is that an area that you can generally negotiate with at the bank? So if, you know, if you go to your local branch and say, look, I was online, I saw these rates at these providers. Are you, you know, it'd be more convenient for me just to go with you since I already bank with you. Can you guys match this or beat it? You know, how, how aggressive can you be? Or, or do you, from your experience, will the bank just say, okay, well, no, these are our rates and you know kind of take it or leave it i'll tell you what what the banks do is they'll look at your overall uh assets net worth mm-hmm. um and and see if they can if they're able to get more business in the future oh, okay. so if it's if it's a young couple that's you know starting up to look for a mortgage and they have some money to save well you know the bank is not going to be very favorable to you know meeting the rates that you find online uh, and, and that's for two reasons. One, you barely have any assets to begin with, so they're, they're not going to make much money on you, uh, with you. And now, when you're out there buying a mortgage, you know, a couple of years from now, you're still not going to have a lot of assets. And mortgages these days, Cornell, have become a loss leader to try to bring other business from the cl- from uh, from the competition of those oh, clients. Yeah, so they don't care too much about the mortgage. You can get great rates about the mortgage, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a few moments. But basically, they want to lure you in with the mortgage so they can get the bank account, so they can get the, you know, if you have any investments elsewhere. That's where they're making their money right now. So uh, to answer your question, it's highly unlikely, especially when it comes to bank accounts, that you're going to get a rate that you're able to get with these online banks, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and GICs as well, I can tell you, if you're, if you're not going to be presenting more business or more potential for the bank, they're not going to look at it. They can't come close to the rates that are offered by these uh, other institutions. 
Interesting. That's that's really fascinating. Yeah. So and it makes I mean from a kind of marketing sales sort of perspective. Yeah, they're just looking at okay, what is the lifetime value of this customer, and they kind of say okay, well yeah, if, if you've got a million in assets that you currently have at another institution, well yeah, let's give you some good rates, let's give you some good deals. You know, we'll cut your fees or whatever. That's correct. But then the intent is to ultimately migrate all that money over to their institution so that now they can charge you those fees. Exactly. So that's that's really that's really interesting. Yeah. So because that was kind of my my follow up question is. You know, when you're doing these negotiations with a bank, whether it's a mortgage for a mortgage or line of credit or investment products, you know, any, anything really that they sell, you know, how much, you know, how hard can you push? And it sounds like your answer is, well, you know, you can always try to, you know, push hard, but, you know, if you don't have a lot of sort of investable assets uh, or things that then they're going to see you kind of as a small fish and they'll just say it's not worth our time. Basically. That's, that's, cor- that's correct basis. And, 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 and it wouldn't be worth their time unless I yeah. mentioned you're able to show a high potential for for earnings in in the future. And the banker that you're going to meet is going to take your case and take it to the manager. The manager might take it to the regional manager, but if you know they they have to see some sort of uh, potential profit coming in the future. Interesting, interesting. Okay, yeah. So that was kind of my sort of next line of questions was, you know, let's let's go over some of these different uh, products that the banks offer, and and you know, how hard can you push on on these different ones, and how can you maximize your chances of basically saving money, you know, getting and getting the best rates. So, uh, so I think we've kind of covered that already a fair bit. So you're saying with mortgages, you're saying on that one you can actually push pretty hard because they're kind of whether you have a lot of assets or not. It sounds like that's like you said, it's a loss leader, so they're not expecting to make a lot. And and that's kind of where yeah well, I guess I guess where you can save quite a bit of money eh, if you um, get well, a bit aggressive yeah that's right and I'm I'm going to give you a couple of tips that nobody knows unless they've worked in banks before and this is where you can squeeze a little bit more out of them is first of all arm yourself with the best rates in the industry and that again mm-hmm. is coming from from other lenders that exist out there as I mentioned earlier there are th- you know 80 different institutions that offer GICs or bank accounts or mortgages Canadian Tire for crying out loud offers mortgages now. They've been doing that for a while. Now, arm yourself with the best rate. That's number one. Number two, when you're sitting down with your banker, tell them that you're going to buy their insurance. When they hear that, they'll do anything to get you as a client because the insurance product itself is the biggest moneymaker for the bank. So Mm -hmm. bankers are, are shown ways to sort of lure clients into taking the insurance. Uh, that comes uh, when you're taking a mortgage through the bank. So um, I would say uh, tell them that you're going to take the insurance and then you have up to 30 days to change your mind. Now, why am I saying change your mind? People say it's not a bad idea to buy insurance. Well, if you buy an insurance policy on your mortgage, but if you buy it from a third party, an individual or an independent insurance company, for example, the insurance comes out to much less than you would have paid if you bought it through the bank. So tell the bank you're going to buy their insurance, but then 15 days later, cancel it online, for example. That way, you know you're going to get the best rate, and your banker's going to be happy. And then if you don't want to keep the insurance, you don't. But I would suggest you know taking insurance, but taking it from an insurance agency. Interesting. Oh, so you're saying basically you sign up with the mortgage, the, the home closes, right? And then you, after that happens, let's say 15 days after the actual mortgage signing or within the 15 days, you go online and you and you cancel that. That's right. Uh, that's right. And you make sure you read the fine print so that you, you, you know that you're within your right to cancel it and that there are no crazy penalties or whatever. Exactly. Uh, obviously, you have to do your due diligence and, and read the fine print. But yeah. uh, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Or, or you, uh, can go online, yeah. you can go online on, on, on their online banking or telephone banking and ask them how much time do I have before I, before I cancel it and or be, how much time do I have to cancel it 
And if they tell you 30 days or 15 days or whatever, you can take that to the bank, let's say. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. So yeah. So yeah, you should definitely kind of do that research kind of ahead of time just to make sure. Because sure. yeah, there's a lot of fine print in those documents. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's unreal. Yeah. It's unreal. Yeah. So, so you have to, have to be very, very thorough. But I guess, yeah, that could give you some negotiating power. Yeah. I know what I used to do is I, uh, like when we had our kind of our, our older mortgage, that's kind of what I did as well. Well, not with the insurance, but I would basically, I yeah, get kind of the, the best rates in the industry with the online research. And then I would basically kind of take him to the you know the, the mortgage broker that we were considering, and I said, okay, look, this is what kind of I can get right now. So right. are you able to beat this? I mean, I know, and, and at that point, so we actually, so the mortgage we ended up getting ended up actually being through uh, a major bank, which right. kind of you know people typically say, oh, well, they have higher rates and stuff. Well, yeah, but you know when you when you walk down the street and you see the branch and you see the posters on their windows, right? It's like a, it's a really high rate you see there, but you can negotiate that down quite a bit. And I remember that's what I did. So we, uh, so yeah, so. That kind of i think uh to supplement your point that yeah with mortgages you can actually negotiate quite heavily just come armed with a lot of information exactly uh and they're able to move on that quite a bit they, they definitely definitely did for us like for us it was to the point where we'd rather just, at that point it was better to go with the bigger bank because we're getting the same rate as kind of the smaller less established bank and the terms were better in terms of the prepayment privileges so right so very yeah lots of at least from my own experience it's a lot of negotiated room so it's interesting i'm glad you kind of said that that's that that's what you've seen on your end as well that's, the business. that's correct and i'll give you one more tool if you have let's say investments at another institution um you can tell the institution that you're sort of courting you can tell them that i'll give the financial planner a chance to bid for my business my my investments they hear nice. that again they hear that and they'll roll out the red carpet so tell them i want to see your financial planner after we close the mortgage i want to see your financial planner so you can evaluate my investments that i have at this other bank very interesting. Yeah, so you could say, okay, I've got this much in assets invested currently, you know, here or here or here, and I'm, and I'm considering potentially switching it just so that it's all in one location, for example, so I can have my bank and my my mortgage and my investments with you. Exactly. I'm, cons I'm considering that, you know, but you've got to help me out here on this mortgage kind of thing. Exactly. And then, uh, and then that's interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> those are the those are the insider tricks. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but but everyone remember always read kind of the fine print do, do your due diligence ahead of time because yeah. you have to be you have to be very careful uh, with stuff. But but yeah, for sure. I mean, if uh, like you said, if they see you as a big potential client. Uh, and you're willing to let's say listen to their advisor or whatever for a bit and then yeah like it could save you a lot of money um interesting okay yeah that's really interesting so um so i guess that's the case with mortgages with lines of credit it sounds like that's a similar kind of scenario uh, and then yeah with, with bank fees uh what's kind of been your experience with that are you able to, i'm guessing you're able to negotiate those kind of in the same way right if you if you're seen as a potentially high high worth client they're they're willing yeah, to cut those I'll as well I'll tell you what my experience, I don't have too much experience with bankers because I, I was never a banker per se. I was a financial planner, I, so I never had an opportunity to negotiate fees or anything like that. But what I can tell you is when it comes to bank accounts, they'll give you the best plan that they, that they have. Um, and they'll go through a questionnaire that uh, will, will ask you how many transactions do you make a month or, or you know, a bunch of other questions that will give them an idea what, what the best banking plan is available for you. There's not a lot of room to negotiate banking fees. Uh, mm -hmm. It's pretty much, I shouldn't say set in stone, but rarely have I seen the bank waive fees because you know, you're going to take a mortgage from them in, in, in a couple of years or something like that. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think the best way to, to do that, and again, things change on a regular basis, 
is, you know, look at uh, different institutions and, and they have online calculators that will show you what your banking fees are. Now, you know, you might save a nickel or a dime here or a dollar or two a month, but you got to remember also for your convenience, you want to, you don't want to be spread out to too many different institutions because right. the paperwork that you'll be getting uh, will be, will be crazy. So it might be worth, you know, foregoing a couple of dollars a month of savings to keep your bank account with the, you know, the, 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 the firm that you're you know, taking a mortgage with or that you're investing with. You. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because they have their system set up in a certain way to offer these different sort of banking plans, right? These different packages. So so to, to change it for one person while signing them up, I mean, that would create a lot of administrative work and it kind of, I could see that being kind of not, you know, not great in the system, right? It's easier to just to say, okay, they pick this plan, they pick that plan. Exactly. Right? exactly. Um, so that makes that makes total sense, kind of from an implementation standpoint. But what I, I can say, tell you, what, I'm uh -huh. sorry, what I can tell you, at least for the Bank of Montreal, you can definitely ask for a lot of air mile points. <laughs> <don't get> it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like there's certain, yeah, there's certain things you can negotiate where they have, uh, yeah, they can just kind of override the system or whatever. That's right. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I know too. I mean, it, maybe there's less flexibility on the bank fees, but if you do get charged a fee and if you were in very good standing with the bank, like let's say with a credit card where you've always paid it on time, you know, you've always you know paid it in full every month or, or at least the minimum, that kind of thing. Uh, if you're a good customer and you've been with them for years, they are definitely, and I mean, I've uh, I've seen this happen where, you know, they, they will very easily waive some of these fees for you okay. uh, because let's say you forgot to pay on time one, one month, for example. Yeah, right. You know, they, they, like things like that, they're, if you're a good client, they're not going to risk losing you as a customer because one day one month you slipped up when for the past five years you've been great so oh, absolutely yeah yeah so that's kind of that's kind of that that happened to uh, i've seen that recently actually and like I, I had to go through that and it was very um you know i was surprised how nice they were yeah. <laughs> because they, because they know you've got a really good history so they're right. like okay if this happens once every decade you're like okay we're, we don't want we're not gonna ruffle this guy's feathers because right. we want to keep him as a customer right. Right. so and i can yeah. tell you i have absolutely zero experience when it comes to bank fees because for over 20 years i was working for banks for two okay, yeah. so i never paid fees this, this is all brand new to me over the past year i started paying fees this is brand new and it pisses me off to be honest with you yeah but anyhow yeah. No, I, I get it yeah we uh like for my personal banking i i use the you know the, the the free accounts the free banks right and i always wonder how why are people still paying for fees yeah. i know if you own a business it's a bit different because there's certain things you need from them and then you pay some fees which kind of frustrates me as well but exactly. but if you're if you're just a regular cons uh, you know person uh then yeah, definitely consider not paying bank fees because there's some good banks out there where they don't they don't you know they don't put limits on withdrawals and things like that so, or or limits on you know how many times you can withdraw and things like exactly, that exactly so, exactly um, okay no that's that's awesome yeah so so no thanks for that that's uh, that it's really interesting to get your insight on that uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention this and we we've talked about this a bit on the podcast before uh, so you mentioned in, in your podcast you have one as well um, where basically there's a potential conflict of interest between the banker and advisor and their clients so based on your experience at these banks you've, you've kind of firsthand experienced this, this potential conflict of interest can you elaborate on this and maybe give us a few examples of, of where you actually saw this happen right now this is an area that's very dear to me because i'm a financial planner i've been involved in, in investments for for over 20 years and there is an inherent conflict of interest and it's quite easy to understand bankers slash advisors slash brokers or, or what have you <clears throat> many terms that people use are paid, I'll say 95% of bankers and advisors are paid based on the products that they sell. And some products pay a lot more than other products. 
That's that's one reason why there's an, a conflict of interest or a potential conflict of interest. Reason number two is they have objectives as to what products or how much they need to sell for each product. So I can be a banker sitting in a bank or a financial planner. Uh, again, and, and this is mostly, or I'd say pretty much all of the advisors that work for banks or in the investment firms that are owned by the banks. So they are there. They have objectives, and and if you are at 70% of your objectives in mutual funds, and if you're at 150% of your objectives in GICs, and your boss is breathing down your neck telling you, you got to pick up some more mutual funds, well, you know, chance, there's a chance that when you walk into the branch, mutual funds will be pushed on you. And I've seen conversations with clients change in a matter of one month because the advisor, you know, reached their objectives and now it's time to sell GICs. So I'm not saying everybody does that, but there is a potential for that. Um, when your advisor is selling mutual funds, there's there's lots of information about the mutual funds that is that is not told to clients. And one of the biggest uh, the biggest uh, information when it comes to this is the fees that they pay for mutual funds. Um, so we're talking, you know, the average uh, balanced fund or equity fund in Canada is about two and a half percent, and that's jailhouse robbery, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so these are so uh, now those those fees, those annual fees, part of that goes to pay the investment advisor that's selling the actual product. So the bottom line is there when when anyone is paid based on the product that they sell, there's always potential for conflict of interest. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's kind of uh, a similar approach to if you go to a car dealership, right? There's a good chance that that salesperson is, is paid depend. you know, they get more money if they sell you, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, like a Ferrari <laughs> versus oh. versus like a low end Ford, for example, not this, you know, like a lower end model. So, so obviously, and well, obviously, there's more to it, right? They have to find the right fit and, and your budget and all that. But uh, but yeah, when you're paid more to sell more, you're likely to recommend things that make you more money. Not not saying like, and there's, I'm sure there's a lot of really ethical, good people in the industry too. Absolutely. Um, you know, but but there is, but like you said, there is that chance that you might get someone that that, that you know where yeah, like you said, over the span of a month, their view all of a sudden changes as to what you should invest in, and that's only because they're worried that their boss is going to I don't know fire them or not promote them or something, right? So exactly, and so, and, and yeah. I've always said never blame the banker or the advisor for this. Right, it's the, it's the bank that's pushing them so much. I, I, I when I right. was in the banks, I remember the the regional manager um, calling up the branches on a daily basis and asking them how much mutual funds they've sold when they were really behind in their objectives. And they had three more months, for example, to 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 get those numbers up. There would be pressure, and I'm saying hard pressure, to sell mutual funds, and that's unfortunate. When when I first started out in the industry, and I'd say up until maybe maybe ten years ago, I had an objective to bring in funds to the institution that I was working at. But it didn't matter whether it went to GICs or mutual funds, or if I referred the client to a partner of the bank, like a brokerage firm or the private bank, for example, there wasn't any added incentive to sell a certain product. We, we, we were just told, bring in assets, put them where you want, or what's best for the client. That's not the case today. Mm -hmm. And that's very unfortunate. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, yeah, for sure. We're no, we're not saying everyone's like that. That works at the at the banks, but uh, but like you said, the way the the system, I guess the 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 structure, right? The way you know everyone, you know, you have to hit your sales targets, things like that, right? And uh, right. it's just it's not, I guess, structured in such a way where the you know you and I, if we're just regular Canadians looking to invest, where it benefits us, right? It's right. not right. And it, and you know what? It leaves room for that type of behavior. Right. Right. Now, yeah. now here's another one that's really that's really a, a strong point. Um, I'm a big fan of what's called ETFs, exchange traded funds. Okay, and um, the, just very quickly, I'll tell you. I'm sure you know, but for for the listeners, it's pretty much a basket of investments, much like mutual funds, except that the fees that you're paying on an annual basis are almost they're almost negligible. Um, you're able to get an ETF in Canada, exchange traded fund again, in Canada that invests in the Toronto Stock Exchange for 0.05%. That's yep. five basis points versus uh, the average equity fund that banks offer at over 2%. That's huge. Yeah, I own and, a lot of those. No, so, <laughs> I buy those every month. And, that's all yeah. I use. That's yeah. all I use, and that's all I recommend for my clients as well. But again, you're not going to get that advice from advisors because they don't get paid for selling these products. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's been some uh, companies that offer ETFs that are starting to compensate brokers because they have no choice. Yeah. You know, people are really finding out. But generally speaking, your broker or your advisor or your banker will never tell you about exchange traded funds because they're not paid to sell it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, we, we go back to the you know what you're 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 paid on what you sell. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, that was one of my questions: is what do you uh, what do you recommend to your clients? Because you you know you're an advisor, but you're not you don't have that conflict, right? You're not trying to sell a particular mutual fund or anything like that, right? You're, exactly, exactly. So, I, so, I, I get mm -hmm. paid by the client for you know for for to consult them and to 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 do a financial plan for them and to right. review their plan and so on and so forth. Now you see, I, I'm remembering another point when it comes to financial planning. The most important aspect of financial planning is to do at least one or twice a year an annual review or a semi-annual review to make sure everything is still going right. You may need to change certain certain investments to others depending on what's happening in the markets. The bottom line is you have to review and rebalance. That's rarely done in the banks, again, because there's no incentive for them to do that. Mm -hmm. once, they, once they bring in your money, there's very little money to go get after that. So you're basically going to get a call uh, once a year for your RSP contributions. And, and, and that's, that's it. I, I, again, this goes back to, you know, you get paid on, 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 on products that you sell, not on service or advice that you give. Okay. Right. So you're, you're, yeah, you, you have a financial incentive to basically uh, just sell, sell more, not necessarily spend that extra half an hour or hour with a client because maybe their situation changed a bit, you know, maybe they had a kid or something, right? And now right. it's okay, things are different now, let's restructure. So uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. There's less or, of an or incentive maybe, to help them. Mm -hmm. Or maybe when the market, if the markets go up substantially, and if your original profile was to be a 50-50 investor, 50% markets and 50% safety, if markets go up substantially, well then all of a sudden, all of a sudden your portfolio is more towards, is has a higher percentage to equities and at that point, what you the best thing you can do is sell some of that to bring it back to 50-50. And that just, you know, the old adage is sell high and buy low. So you'd be selling a little bit just so you can rebalance your portfolio. And th those are strategies, again, that are that are rarely done in, in, in institutions like that. 
Interesting, interesting. And then are there any other sort of, because uh, this is kind of an interesting question too, I think, since you've been in the industry for so long. Can you, yeah, can you elaborate a bit as well on a, kind of the difference between what a financial planner does at the bank versus someone like yourself, you know, like a fee-for-service or fee-based financial planner? Right. I'll, I'll tell you, a financial planner at a bank, um, when you're a financial planner, you have the abilities to do what I like to call total wealth management, which is an investment plan, a retirement plan, you do estate planning for the client, you help them write their will, or at least you assist them with, you know, you, you, you'll go um, with, the lawyer and, yeah. with a lawyer or the notary to write their will. So this is what I call total wealth management, insurance planning. A, a financial planner who's been trained properly um, ha- can, can more than scratch the surface on these topics, okay? And now that's what you that's what you get that's what you should be getting when you're dealing with a fee-based financial planner. That's what you should get when you're dealing with any kind of financial planner. But in the banks, again, there is no incentive for them to do anything else but an investment plan or a retirement plan. So people that uh, the majority of Canadians believe that a financial plan is a retirement plan, which is not the case. That's only one spoke of of right. five or six other different areas that you should be covering. So a planner in a bank, again, will only do retirement or investment planning for you. There's no incentive for them to do anything else because they tried to lure you to buy in the products using an investment plan or a retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what a financial planner does, a certified financial planner at a bank. A banker, which is you know the person that you meet um, you know, to do your mortgage or to do a bank account or what have you, they probably have a mutual fund license and they can just sell you mutual funds. They can't do comprehensive, you know, financial planning or retirement planning. So usually when, when, a, when an individual or a client walks into a bank and they have investment needs and the, their needs are, you know, the amount of money that they have is, let's say, over twenty or thirty or $50,000, they'll usually get referred to a financial planner of that branch. Mm-hmm. And they'd be able to help you out a little bit more. But again, all you're getting is a retirement plan or and or an investment plan. Right. Yeah. So I think kind of the big takeaway here for the for the listeners is just to to never assume that because just because you have a retirement plan that that's it that that's the whole story and you're basically set and you don't have to worry about all these other things. So there are these other parts of sort of financial planning that's more than just kind of investments right and absolutely so it's important to kind of look at the entire picture right because yeah if you're just focused on investments fine but let's say you're getting older you don't have an estate plan you know that could really hurt you if you don't have that so mm-hmm. that could be you know you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot a little bit there if you kind of go on thinking you're fully covered or when really you, you don't even have any sort of estate planning in place even though you know you're maybe much older so uh, yeah i'm glad you brought that up i think that's a yeah. really good kind of warning sign yeah and i'll tell you one more point which is extremely important um, tax planning. It's amazing how many people are not using all the tax strategies that are out there mm-hmm. to either reduce or defer their taxes. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see that quite a bit with business owners because business owners have a lot more tax advantages than you know a, a, a typical employee, let's say. But even the employee is not using all the strategies that are out there. So a, a financial planner, a good financial planner, will look at, you know, are there any other ways that you can reduce income or reduce income taxes? Is there any way that you can split your income? There's strategies out there that people don't use that are available, and um, that's another huge part of an of a financial plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. So, you know, are there you mentioned ETFs, and are there any other sort of top ways that you recommend that you can save money on your investments? Look, um, again, the typical Canadian is buying either GICs or mutual funds. Mm -hmm. So the best way to, you know, I would I would not use mutual funds. The only time I would use mutual funds would be if there's an individual who's just starting to make money and they want to save 50 or $100 a month. Your only choice is mutual funds, okay? But when you reach a certain level of assets, of, of I would say, you know, as, as little as 15, 20,000 or more, that's when I'd start using exchange traded funds. But again, the problem with that is you're not going to get that from your banker or your financial advisor. You're either going to do it on your own or you're going to seek out an independent financial planner that uses exchange traded funds. Mm -hmm. So and as far and as far as GICs are concerned, you know, let's go back to the beginning of the show where you know we said you know try to find GICs at other institutions that'll give you a better rate than what banks are offering you. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if you want to invest in individual stocks, that's a different story. And um, I would say for the majority of Canadians, you know, trying to stock pick or trying to, uh, to, to create a portfolio of, of stocks is quite difficult, if not impossible, if you're not following the markets all the time. And even if you do follow the markets all the time, it's been proven time and time again that nobody can outperform the markets themselves. So you can buy the entire market using exchange-traded funds or ETFs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's what I've been doing for, for quite a while now, just just buying ETFs. Uh, and, and I mean, it's that's like after researching this sort of extensively, very extensively, yeah. you know, this that's kind of the, that seems to be over and over and over again that, you know, it keeps coming up that that's kind of the, sort of the at least at least for me personally that's that's right. a really good uh, that's a really really good fit because i'm very kind of fee conscious and i don't mind you know doing it myself i, I will say because like, i mean if i mean technically if you if you really don't want to do it yourself even though i would argue it's actually pretty easy through a discount brokerage um, right. I, I mean if you have only a couple hundred dollars let's say or you know hundred dollars a month to invest i mean you could still go to a discount brokerage account and you could there, there, are, there are like there is one for example that i use where you can actually buy the etfs for free so you could actually still start with very small amounts of money um Actually, I think I think you need like a I don't know thousand dollars or something like that to open one up. But um, yeah, so there's there are some options if you're just getting started, just to kind of you know work your way into it. That's um, awesome. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah, it's very uh, like that's kind of because a lot of times you know sometimes people will say, oh well, yeah, you go to a discount brokerage, do it yourself once your assets are big enough, right? Because yeah, right. because and and the kind of the big thing that they say is well, it's because of the trading fees because you're gonna have to pay let's say ten bucks every time you trade. So if you're right. buying four ETFs every month, let's say that's forty bucks. So that that really adds up over time, right? That's right. Uh, when you're first starting off, that's right. So when if you're just buying like two ETFs, I mean that's not worth paying, you know, <laughs> like twenty dollars in fees. Like it's it's exactly, you know, it's, exactly. like it becomes exactly. it's it doesn't make any sense. So I see what you're saying there, but I know like like with what I use is uh, uh like um is yeah like you can actually buy them for uh, for free. Um and so when you do that, then it kind of it's good because it, you're basically practicing buying ETFs yourself with small amounts of money. So it's kind of a nice way to get your feet wet and you get comfortable with the process. And then as your salary goes up, as you're saving more, you know, you can put more and more in and at that point you feel comfortable, right? That's great. Uh, and, and I'm glad we're talking because I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that there's institutions out there that, that sell them for free. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah. So that's kind of the, um, that's something that's worth, um, 
they, they don't make much money off it. In fact, I've actually talked to them and I said, because I was trying to, yeah, I was, I was actually chatting with them and they said, look, like when it comes to, because I, I told them, you know, listeners of the show, a lot of the listeners of this show, they, they do buy ETFs, right? And yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and, but, and they're saying, yeah, we don't make like barely any, not much money of that at all as a discount yeah. broker because they make know, nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're like, it's not worth that. So they, they won't, you know, they occasionally, they won't promote it very, you know, they, they would rather promote other things, right? They'd right. rather promote active traders, right? Where you're stock picking because then you're buying and selling all the time and they exactly. get a commission each time, right? So, that's right. That's so right. that so that's kind of so that's kind of almost like a little little secret. Although, like with shows like this and, and others, you know, it's becoming less of a secret that yeah. that actually ETFs are out there. It is much cheaper and it is possible to do it yourself. But yes, but you'd be surprised at how at least people that walk into banks and and I've been in the banking industry for over twenty years. There's not a lot of people that know about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it might be easy for you and I, we're in the industry, you know, we're, you know, we're looking at these things all the time, but that's not the case with, I'd say the majority of Canadians, um, and, and they're still not aware of, of these tools. And what I can say about ETFs is I, I've been clipping articles and, and before they were called ETFs, they used to be called, um, index funds or, you know, something in, in Canada used to be called drips or spiders in the U S okay. That you can buy. I, I was clipping articles before the internet in the nineties that was, you know, showing how ETFs or at least, you know, the markets themselves outperform money managers. And the biggest reason is fees. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you're saving, if you're saving 2% a year on fees, like when I run numbers for clients and I, and I show them, let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars and you're saving $2,000 in fees. Well, over 20 years, if your money is growing at 6%, which is a decent rate to use, right. the fees are about $100,000. That's over 20 years. That You've wiped out your initial investment yep. by fees over 20 years. It's, it's unreal when I, when, I, when I run these numbers. I have to run them again because sometimes I'm shaking my head. It's, it's, un- you know, it's, it's unbelievable. It's funny you mention that because the, the exact same thing happened to me. So I, I, you know, the first time I heard, you know, that you could save, you know, like a six-figure sum, right? Like over a hundred thousand dollars. I thought, I thought that 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 doesn't sound right. That's too much. Yeah, that can't right, that right. can't be right. Like you know, there's the markets are competitive. There's no way that you know there could be that much of a difference. So Correct. I I was so skeptical, but it's coming from you know reputable sources. So I'm kind of okay. You know what? Just just so it doesn't bug me anymore, I'm going to just calculate the numbers myself. And see, you know, like what it would be for myself, and right. uh, and yeah, it was it was like hundred, it was it was actually like hundreds of thousands, so like not more, you know, like multiple sets of one hundred thousand over my lifetime. So, uh, I, you know, after that, I was sold. I thought this is insane. How can like how can anyone do that? But but yeah, I guess there's like uh, you know, pe- the people don't really know, like you said, right? And so um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and, but yeah. And, and they're and they're not promoted. I was reading an article a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was from a reputable. Um, uh, website here in Canada that mentioned that the the headline was ask not say not when it comes to ETFs as far as the brokerage community or the investment community they don't talk about it unless they're asked about it uh, they don't bring it up and that's right. that's been hurting that's been hurting their sales it also hurts Canadians let's face it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, it's interesting uh, yeah. Warren, Warren Buffett himself and I have this article too that I like showing people um, told his family when he passes away, put all his money in index funds, which are the equivalent of exchange traded funds. That's right. Yeah. If, if it's if it's good for him, you know, damn right, it's going to be good for me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I think I, I mentioned that uh, like an, an article where they talked about that in a previous episode. Actually, yeah, it's kind of. Uh, 
you know, you might not agree with everything, you know, he does or says, but, you know, when, when he's recommending to his own family what to do, who aren't all, you know, professional stock investors, right. uh, it's interesting how he's also saying, just go broad, don't, don't, basically, he's kind of saying, don't do what I do, unless you're willing to do it, you know, full time and become like a true, you know, professional at it, essentially. Right. And, and, and he is a big fan of ETFs and he yeah. uses ETFs as well. Now, you know, we bring up Warren Buffett. A lot of people don't know, but you can, you can do exactly what Warren Buffett does by buying a certain share in the market, which replicates his portfolio. Mm -hmm. But you'll never hear that again from advisors because, again, they're not paid for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. they'll, get, they'll get paid for buying the stock once and, you know, the client will keep it forever and then they're not making any more commission. Are you saying, so you're referring to owning basically, so there's like an ETF that owns what Berkshire Hathaway owns? Is that what you're saying? No, I, no, just buying Berkshire Hathaway share. Oh, okay, gotcha. And, okay, yep. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And and in, in the old days, uh, the shares used to be worth like 100000 or $150,000. Now they've developed another share, which I believe is in the hundreds of dollars. So it's, it's accessible. His strategy of investing is accessible to everyone right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, though no, I'm definitely. Yeah, we're we're definitely kind of on the same. Um, we're, we're both we're both kind of believers of the ETF. It sounds like for sure. Now, now when you recommend the ETFs, are you also uh, begin to recommending that you basically go broad? So, by, you know, by the entire U.S. market, the entire Canadian, or are you one of those guys that say, no, no, let's let's niche it down. Let's focus on specific ETFs within different sectors, things like that. How, what's yeah. your stance on that? You know something, Quail? I I'm a true believer of keeping things simple. So I'm not going to say let's buy 10% of this junior gold ETF and, you know, 10% of the oil ETF. Mm. When you're buying the Canadian market as a whole, so you're able to buy the TSX, uh, the, uh, the TSX 50, for example, you're buying 50 of the biggest and the best companies in Canada. To me, that's enough for the average investor unless, you know, the client really wants to get technical. I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. In, in in my in my in, in my uh, in my career, I haven't seen people doing a heck of a lot better. Um, you know, really, you know, buying you know five or six or seven different uh, ETFs. Actually, I shouldn't say five or six. You know, I like to stick with the broad Canadian markets, a dividend fund in Canada, for example, mm -hmm. uh, blue chips in Europe, a little bit of the Far East. I don't get terribly complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I keep things pretty simple. Uh, I keep things pretty simple as well. And, and from all the research that I've read, it sound it basically points that you know if you get fancier and if you really know what you're doing and you devote a lot of time into it, you may be able to squeeze maybe a little bit return if you're you know if you right. do things correctly. That you know, which is kind of a big if, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right? No, you know, whereas you can keep it simple and not really have to worry about that if. Uh, but they said that even if you do all these tweaks and you you're able to squeeze out a little bit more return because you know you're kind of nitpicking and you're you're getting more specific, um, then that actually is the amount you gain from doing that is nothing compared to how much you're saving in fees. So basically fees totally overshadow that extra little bit of uh, that extra little bit of gain that you might get if you actually do things, you know, properly in a more complicated fashion. So Absolutely. Uh, so 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 it's almost like before you even 
try, even if you think, because I get questions like this sometimes from listeners of the show where they're like, well, I'm thinking of, I, I tell everyone that I just do a really simple kind of straightforward portfolio. I do basically, you know, a, th a third in Canada, third, in terms of equity, I do third in Canada, third of US, third international, and I have That's some true. emerging markets in there, you know, and I get some questions sometimes of Canadians saying, okay, well, I wanted to do, you know, let's say there's different portfolios out there, right? Like what if I put this much in gold and this much in there and this much in there? And I just kind of say, well, look, you know, from the research I've seen and I refer them to, you know, some, some research I've read, yeah, if you do things the other, like the more complicated way, uh, yeah, you you might you might be able to squeeze a bit more if you don't mess it up. Uh, maybe you know based on history, which isn't even all that you know you can guarantee uh, <laughs> you know the future based on history anyway. But but if you're if you're focused on that and you're still paying a lot in fees, then then like you know why don't focus on the fees first? Is, is basically what I'm saying. That's the low hanging fruit. Exactly, and what yeah. I can tell you of other studies that I'm sure you've heard of. The your return, the overall return that you that you will be getting in the future, doesn't depend on the actual investment itself. It depends on your asset allocation, mm -hmm. which means if I'm relatively conservative, and and my portfolio is going to be fifty percent in the stock markets and fifty percent in safety, the actual investments that you choose are not the biggest indicators of what your rate is going to be. It's the actual asset allocation to make sure that it stays at 50-50. Mm -hmm. So all of this trying to say that the, the biggest, the, the most important aspect of creating a portfolio is to figure out which asset allocation is best suited for yourself. And you can do that by sitting down with a financial planner and they'll you know, figure out what your tolerance for risk is. Mm -hmm. you know, I like to show clients, when I show clients a portfolio of whatever, 70% equity, 30% safety, I like to show them what the worst case scenario for such a portfolio has been in any one given year. Right. And if and if and if it was like in two thousand and eight, it was like minus twenty percent. But then I, I show them minus twenty percent was the fluctuation over one year. Over five years, you know, it wasn't such a big fluctuation. But can you live with the idea that there's potential that your million dollars will go down to eight hundred thousand over one year? Right. That's what really brings it out front to the client. Yeah, I'd lose sleep. Let's go more conservative. Or yeah, I got no problem with that because I know over three years or five years or more, such a portfolio has rarely had a negative return. But it's, it show all the facts to clients so they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. Mm -hmm. So it's asset allocation, which is the most important aspect. For sure. And, yeah, and being able to kind of stick with it and not switch or not say, okay, I'm, you know, you put too much into equities, it went down, and now you basically sell everything off and you spur off the stock market. And, right. and then you basically just sold when everything was low. <laughs> and, exactly. Yeah, and now yeah. you've just like, you know, destroyed your, your plan there. So yeah, no, I... I uh, uh, yeah, I, I've seen quite a bit of studies there as well where people get kind of very detailed about, okay, should I put some in gold? Should I put some in, you know, these commodities here? You know, things like that. Uh, but really, Actually, it's more about asset allocation. Can you stick with it? Can you ride, you know, can you ride out the storms? I mean, you know, are you minimizing your fees? I mean, those are the biggest levers, right? That's right. Yeah. Make sure you're rebalancing your portfolio to right. get to your original asset allocation. That's the most important step as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And that's where, uh, that's where a good financial planner will proactively contact the client and say, let's look at your portfolio. We need to rebalance because, you know, the markets have been terrible and now all of a sudden you find yourself with too much safety. So let's buy some markets, buy when they're low. Right, right, exactly. Well, so I have to, I guess, you know, we, 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 it looks like we're not going to have some... Uh crazy debate here, John, because it seems like we're pretty aligned. So on the on the one end, you know, hopefully listeners are still finding this interesting, even though we're both kind of uh, on board, you know, with the same approach, uh, yeah. but, you know, but on the on the upside, so, so, so no drama on this episode, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Cornell, I can give you an argument if you want. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you know what? With uh, but at the same time, on the flip side, I'm happy that because I mean, you know, you've been doing this for you know, I, I, is it like 25 years? You said it's, it's been a while. You've been doing this, right? Since 1992. Yeah. So you know, you've been you've been at this for quite a while. Uh, you know, I've researched this uh, to death before. You know, started <laughs> starting to invest as well. Uh, you know, and I can obviously continue to do that as well. Um, so it's kind of it's always nice to see that. Okay, you know what? Even though we might not have some heated debate, it's nice to see that based on your you know, like years and years of experience and based on kind of all the research I've done too, that we're both kind of coming to the same conclusion. So uh, at least that makes me sleep better at night with my investments. So that's good. Because <laughs> yeah, it's, you see, but it's interesting, right? Because as you talk to more and more people, uh, you know, who, who really focused on educating themselves about this, you, you see kind of the, the these things come up over and over again, that actually there seems to be quite a bit of consensus in terms of what to kind of what to invest in and how to invest yeah. and the best practices. That's, there, there seems to be a lot of that. Yeah. Um, that's right. Very neat. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And I was going to say, I think the what your audience can take out of this, if we're going to wrap up in a minute or two, um, is first of all, try to find someone who is not paid based on the products that they sell. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you can and, and you can do that. You can you can Google that information, and you can probably find out you know some financial planners in your area that are not paid based on commission. Two, if you really need a bank, meaning you know if if you're not at the level where you you have enough assets to go to a financial planner, when you when you visit the bank, tell them how can you invest in exchange traded funds and. You know, hopefully they'll find somebody that can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Number three, you know, when it comes to your mortgage, as we mentioned, which is something that many people think of these days, um, there's there's ways to negotiate. You know, bring in the rates that you find online. Tell them that you're going to buy insurance. Tell them that you're going to have your investments reviewed by their planner, and that's the way you're going to get the best rates. Mm-hmm. Awesome. No, that that's great. No, thank you for uh, for summarizing that. And you know what? Just to give you a little bit chance to talk about kind of what, you know what you do in your practice as well. Uh, I know you focus a lot on doing financial planning for business owners, uh, which is pretty interesting because I know there's certain uh, there's additional things that you can do if you actually own a business, right? When it comes to you know financial planning, taxation, things of that nature. So maybe maybe now's a good chance to, uh, for you to talk a little bit about kind of what you do uh, and what are some of these sort of opportunities for that business owners have uh, just because they have a business, so they kind of have more flexibility and, and are these sort of is the payoff significant enough for people to, to with businesses to even care about this right right so yeah my my practice is exclusively business owners uh, and the reason I chose to do that is because again being in the banking sector for so many years I noticed how underserved business owners were when it came to their finances when it came to their taxes and um, I decided to, to choose that because, first of all, I enjoy working with business owners. It's, it's amazing how diversified businesses are. I, I still meet business owners and they tell me what they do. And I'm always saying, how in the world did you get into that? You know, it's, it's really something to see the entrepreneurial spirit in people. Um, but, but as you mentioned, there's a lot more tax planning strategies that are available for business owners. Um, and there's ways to split your income. In other words, you know, uh, try to give some income from your business to family members. There's there's other strategies that can replace an RRSP where you'd be able to get maybe double the amount of um, reduction or, or tax return than, than you'd get through RSPs. There's, you know, insurance strategies. And it's not necessarily, you know, because you need life insurance to, to protect something. There are insurance strategies for business owners that help you defer taxes. And when you do eventually pass away, you know, a lot, lots of money are, is going to come to your or is going to go to your 
to your family in, in, a, in a tax-free basis. So there's many different strategies that are available for business owners. And I can tell you, I'd say maybe 80% of business owners that I work with weren't using all the strategies that were available to them. And you'd think, you know, with accountants, um, you know, they, they'd be keeping their eyes on that. But it's amazing when I ask business owners, you know, how how their accountant is, the, the, the answer is they're, they're okay, but, and, and the but is usually they're not proactive in looking at different solutions or different strategies that may, you know, help, help the business owner. So I've always told clients it's better to have at least two pairs of eyes looking at your situation where, you know, I could be debating their accountant and they can be answering me back, but, but we're coming up with different ideas that weren't thought of before. It's, it's incredible some fundamental things that accountants miss uh, when, they're, when they're dealing with their, with their clients. And, you know, sometimes it's just a good idea to have a fresh pair of eyes that knows about tax planning strategies for business owners, for example. And that's where, that's where I think, um, well, I'm able to stand out because I have quite a bit of experience with tax planning for business owners. I've taken some extra courses and what have you, and I've had the long-term experience where, you know, I'm, I might be able to see something that their accountant hasn't seen or their tax professional hasn't seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I mean, when, it, when you have your own business, the stakes are pretty high. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's all these things that you can do. And I, I know because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in, in that world as well. And, and, and for sure, I can see how, you know, because the dollars are so high in that, it makes sense to have a second set of eyes because maybe, you know, maybe your existing account specializes kind of more so in one area and maybe there's some other strategies he doesn't know about just because he's really good, you know, in helping you in certain parts of your business, but maybe there's some parts that he, you know, just hasn't devoted that time. Uh, and so, you know, and so that's where, you know, you, you can have, you know, an actual financial planner also take a look at it. Like you said, fresh pair of eyes, different types of kind of analysis maybe. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of to make sure you're kind of really maximizing it. Cause I mean, this isn't like, you know, saving a hundred dollars. Right. I mean, this is something where you can drastically affect, it can drastically affect uh, at the very least, you know, what you're getting taxed if it's done properly. Right. So that's correct. Yeah. Well, I, I like doing I like doing a cost benefit analysis. So yeah. if there's a strategy that I'm recommending that might involve creating a new trust, for example, mm -hmm. so creating another entity. Right. Well, let's figure out how much this is going to cost us and how much it's going to save us every year. And then you're able to say it's going to cost you five thousand dollars, but you're going to save ten thousand dollars in taxes, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, business owners get surprised when I tell them you shouldn't be contrib contributing into your RSP. And they're like, what? Like nobody's told them that. And a good amount of, of business owners should not be contributing into their RSPs. Mm. And, they're, and they're always, you know, completely surprised when I tell them that. They've never heard that from their bank because, again, I mean, you know, banks sell RSPs. Right. They haven't heard it from their accountants because, again, they're, they just don't know everything. Um, yeah, they, they specialize that's, that's, in different areas, basically, right? So that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, they, you can't. And, and that's fine. They can't know everything. Yeah. So again, the more you know, professionals look at your situation, the more ideas can flow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. So yeah, John, that's uh, I mean, that's great. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, you've you've got me intrigued about this, especially that RSP comment. That's one I didn't uh, <laughs> know about for business owners. So that because I've yeah, I've, <laughs> so that's that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, uh, how can Cornell, yes Cornell. 
Ask Mr. Google. <laughs> you're gonna get no, but you're gonna see. And, and if you'd like, I, I can explain to you, you know, off off the air. But uh, sure, it's something worth looking into. That's for sure. That's interesting. Yeah, just because my I know uh, you know my dad has uh, has his own you know business, and I know he's putting some in the RSP. Uh, like he has his own you know, corporation, right? So I'm I'm sure he can kind of benefit from that. So I'm I'm kind of thinking of him here, uh, especially. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So no, thanks for that. And uh, and yeah, just maybe let, let us uh, let everyone know how they can get in touch with you. I mean, I'll have on the show notes. I'll I'll have a link to your site. You know, we'll have we'll kind of have everything posted there too. Uh, but just in case someone's driving and can't check right now, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe just tell us how we can reach you. Well, um, my phone is very simple. Uh, my number is 514-819-3370. And uh, check us out. My, my firm is called Merit Financial Planning. That's M-E-R-I-T financialplanning.ca. Um, and you, you can find me on LinkedIn, on, on, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, but, I, you know, the most direct way, the old-fashioned way is give us a call. <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. And, then do you do uh, and I'm an old-fashioned guy. <laughs> sounds good. I've been around for a while. <laughs> and then do you do anything like uh, like a free, like if someone calls you, do you do like a free consultation or anything like that? Or how does it work? That's, that, that's good. I actually, I offer two free consultations. Oh, awesome. And the first one is is basically for us to get to know each other. Um, and, and, and I find that the first meeting gives the client a chance to see if we are the type of firm that can help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're able to kick our tires, let's say, and, and, and get an idea of what we do. And then I'm also able to see what the client is looking for and if I can help them. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the meeting, we, we typically we... We, we are in a position, you know, one or the other to say, yes, it's a good idea or no, you know what, I don't think it's a good fit. And then if we do find that uh, there is a good fit, then we'll go to the second meeting and really get into the details of, of the client and find out, you know, more details, what they're worth, what their goals are, what they do for a living, their family, so on and so forth. But the first meeting is really, you know, a high level, let's talk about you, what are your concerns, and then I can give you an idea if I can help you or not. And, and again, the client can see if, if uh, what we offer is what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So it's two free initial meetings. That's great. And you know, by the end of that point, I think, you know, we're able to say, you know, let's move on and, 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 and you know, work together or, you know, it doesn't make sense. That sounds good. Yeah, that, I like that because, I mean, someone might say I'm already paying my accountant and why not have to hire another professional and not pay even more money? Is it is it worth it? What if it's not? So so I, that, that's great, actually, how you have the two just to make sure. Uh, and, well, and then there's no risk that way. That, that's right. That exactly, and people are people are allowed to say no. Right, <laughs> you know, right. like usually there there's lots of pressure when it comes to when you, when you're dealing with a financial advisor in general. They're also salesy, and you know they're looking. You know, the more money, the more sales they make, the more money they make. So it's our industry is generally a salesy industry. Okay, right. uh, I've tried to read uh, to eliminate that from my practice. But what I'll say, you mentioned about the accountant. One thing I tell clients off the top. We're not there to replace your accountant. We're, I want to meet your accountant, and I want to talk about your situation with your accountant. We're not. I'm, I'm not going to say let's lose this accountant unless the accountant is terrible, and, right. and then we find him another accountant. But we're not there to replace the accountant. We're there to complement him. Yeah. Um, and once accountants realize that, they're not. You know, they're not defensive. I mean, uh, and and so we're not charging. When we're doing tax planning, estate planning, we're not charging any extra fees for that. That all comes with the initial fee that is being paid to manage the client's money. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, the client ends up paying about half the amount of fees that they were paying their banks 
and they're getting a heck of a lot more service and more more real financial planning or more comprehensive financial planning. Mm -hmm. And the fees, when you're dealing with an independent financial planner, the fees are also tax deductible, which is not the case when you're, you know, when you're purchasing mutual funds through your bank, for example. Right, right. That's great. That's wonderful. And then you work with Canadians all over Canada, I assume? That's right. I, okay. I mean, you know, I, I, I've done, you know, phone call consultations and what have you. Generally, it's it's interesting to to be meeting a client face to face. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and most people enjoy that or would prefer that. So, if if ever any one of your listeners needs a financial planner, an independent financial planner across the country, I'll be able to help them and I'll be able to sort of you know take them to or show them people in their area that they should be working with. I'm in the I'm in the Quebec area, the Montreal area. So, uh, but I work with clients out of Ottawa, for example, and there's a few clients, as I've mentioned, that truly believe what I have to say, and, and you know, we usually do conference calls or, or you know, we're on the computer and we're, we're talking face-to-face -face like that. That's great. That's great. That sounds good, yeah, because I get questions like that from listeners of the show sometimes, you know, they're looking for someone uh, that, that has sort of that business uh, background because, you know, they might have their own business as well, and so they want, right. you know, they want, they know that there's certain things you can take advantage of when you have your own business, but that's an area where you really want someone specialized in it, like in your case, right? So, um, so that's great. So, yeah, I'll, uh, if anyone's in that area, I'll refer them to you, and, and even if they're not, uh, like you said, you can work with people remotely as well, uh, and that's, so that's not an issue. So, that's, that's fantastic. So, that's good. I'm happy I have a person to, uh, to refer uh, show listeners to when they're asking for you know a, a planner that has kind of a specialty in you know if, uh, in, in terms of uh, businesses you know and tax optimization from that perspective as well right on. so right. awesome that's that's awesome John I mean I, I don't know about you but I had a really really good time chatting with you and uh, like I said I can sleep better at night knowing that you also kind of have <laughs> the same the same views as myself uh, you know after all yeah. after you know even more years in this uh, you know industry than myself so uh, so so yeah I mean it's been great chatting with you like I said I'll have in the show notes I'll have all your information as well and uh, that's that's it that's it on my end right on I enjoyed it too Cordell I'm just looking at the clock here and I can't believe it's been over an that's hour right. time flies when you're having fun that's right that's right <laughs> or when you're when you're talking about something that you're really passionate about time flies exactly exactly for sure okay that's awesome John so yeah have a, have a good one thanks for coming on uh, I'll have all the links uh, you know on my page uh, so the listeners can check you out as well ask you any questions things like that and uh, yeah have a, have a great week and I'm sure we'll chat uh, in the near future as well I appreciate it, Cornell, and good luck to all your listeners, and we'll do this again. Awesome, awesome. Thanks, John. Have a good one. Thanks to you. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview. You can get all the links in the show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash 30. Of course, if you're interested in index investing, don't forget to check out my full step-by-step -step video guide over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. Or if you're more of a dividend investor or just like to pick your own stocks, then you can get some top quality free help from 5i Research by getting full access to all their stock analysis reports, their model portfolios, and over 47,000 answered investing questions by signing up for the free trial, which will give you unlimited access to everything for 30 days. You can get all of that by going to buildwealthcanada.ca slash trial. All right, have a good one and I'll talk to you soon. Take care, bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.